Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations across the state. Hey, it's Friday. It's uh, 11.15. We're in Little Lamps Coffee Shop. It is November 3rd. With me are Mark Levy of the AP, Charlie Thompson of Penn Live. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. It's Friday. What could yeah. be bad? Happy it's Friday. Happy <laughs> it's Friday. Um, we had a solid week last week. Uh, the budget more or less got finished. Um, and we've really sort of just this week has been, you know, picking up the pieces of that, trying to figure out exactly what still has to get done. Because, you know, we're saying it's over, but it's not really over, is it? Um, what are, I guess, Mark, what are the biggest outlying things you can think of at this point? So it's essentially the gambling and the borrowing um, seem to be kind of two persistent threads that are going to play out. Um, the borrowing could resolve itself in the coming weeks or so, whereas the gambling thing is just going to pick up steam as more and more elements of it roll out as the gaming control board gets up and running and starts taking applications for all the different forms of gambling that were just legalized. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, we have, let's just do a quick recap of all the forms of gambling that were legalized. We now have VGTs in truck stops of video gaming terminals. Those are going to be licensed through existing casinos. I feel like this should be like a Johnny Cash. um, We got truck stops online. So it's, um, so yeah, um, online. Yeah. uh, These terminals at truck stops. Yeah. New mini casinos, 10 of them around the state. And um, airports, airports, interactive parlors at airports where you would have an iPad mm-hmm. you could play sort of online. Um, and, and the lottery, too. The yeah. lottery will get uh, more. Uh, they, they can go online with their games. They can do kino and bars. Yeah. And so, but now, like, there's still just, like, I feel like a lot of this is just up in the air yet, you know. It's, it hasn't really been done yet at this point. So like, what now has to happen? Well, um, everything has to be rolled out and um, you know, licenses will have to be issued. I, I, they're going to set up an auction process for the, the satellite casinos around the state, which will probably land um, casinos in places like State College or Williamsport or Reading or Gettysburg. Now, one thing that's going to be interesting in that process is that there's a window of time where local elected officials can say, we want to be a casino-free zone. Right. We don't want a casino in our in our community. Potentially everyone could say that. Right. So it'll be interesting to see if there's pushback at the local level to the, the gaming expansion. Same thing for the VGT, VGTs at yeah. truck stops. There, at the county level, county commissioners have a chance to opt out and say... Yeah, we don't want we don't want any kind of commercial gambling um, and didn't in, this in happen, our jurisdiction. Didn't this happen with table games too, where like everybody had an option to have table games, but then nobody wanted them, and so it made no money? Wasn't that something that? Oh, happened? I think yeah, you're thinking of the tavern games. Tavern games. Yeah, table games were everybody was pretty much everybody ready for that because games, we had yeah. casinos in place, and but that was the was next in, logical step. But what was it in taverns? That it was, was, it was sort of the the regulatory uh, hurdles there, where you had to have background checks to get them, and you had to do a lot of paperwork. Work and you had to pay a fee, and and nobody did it. Yeah, yeah. is there are there similar hurdles for these processes? Well, you know, I, I, there the one hurdle is is this local. 
do we want to opt out and, right. and not be a part of it? And then secondly, I, I think you know, there's going to be some marketplace decisions that the casino companies are going to have to make about, hey, is it a worthwhile investment for us to sink $10 million into a license and then build a new facility for what is really maybe a second-tier market that, you know, only time is going to tell whether this really grows our gambling market in Pennsylvania or whether it just kind of shifts money around from the existing casinos. And I don't think that all of the casino companies are going to do it. Yeah. I, I think that, and, and it'll be interesting to see. I, I've heard there are some that might say, "Well, we'll do, we'll do more than one." So, you know, maybe they'll get their full ten allocated. It just kind of depends. That's one thing we're going to have to wait and see. Is just how the market. Um, adapts to that. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, but I mean, like, we're now the state with the second most casinos, and you have to wonder how far the market can even, you know, support more of this industry, right? Exactly. Are we reaching capacity at this point? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there there is a school of thought that might say that, um, as far as casino gaming, they're... There are enough out there, and and, uh, another one coming online in Philadelphia, that... You know, there, there's maybe enough to satisfy our gambling market, mm-hmm. and um, so are, are the satellite casinos really going to grow the business, or are they just going to um, slice up the pie differently? The one thing that is probably a new market, a, a new um, business line that will that everybody seems to think is going to capture new revenue is is the uh, iGaming or, or internet-based games that will now be you know allowed and will uh, let mark in his off times in the AP office, play poker <laughs> from his smartphone, you know. Or <laughs> he has so <laughs> much free time. Lose more of the money I don't have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that—that that is everybody in the casino business seems to like to make the argument that those are people that it, it hits uh, younger people that don't typically go to casinos. Right. And um, so, so they might be able to, to grab some new business. So we'll see if that. that bears out. It, yeah, we it should might hope. Not. <laughs> a, I mean, the, the policymakers who, who went down this road should hope because yeah. otherwise they're not going to meet their targets again. No. Um, we had, uh, we heard from Governor Wolf on this, you know, budget plan for the first time since it had passed on Monday. Um, he held a press conference that I think was kind of confusing for all of us. But uh, part of what he was talking about was um, whether or not he's going to borrow against the tobacco um, in a control board, no, it's liquor control board, the tobacco settlement fund or the state's liquor industry. So he's really keeping those two options open, right? Yeah, and, and he contradicted himself several times, and I'm not sure whether he was confused or he couldn't hear the questions or or there was jargon being used that he wasn't fully on, you know, familiar with. Yeah. But the idea is lawmakers seem, at least Republicans, seem to want him to borrow against the Tobacco Settlement Fund, right. which is money from the cigarette manufacturers that they, they have to pay because of, uh, of the, the health uh, impacts that uh, cigarettes cause. And that money is already going somewhere. It's going to some health programs. Some it, of it well, goes to the general fund. Well, it, 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 it is shouldering. Most of it shoulders costs that historically were... Uh, paid for by the general fund, which right. is the state's main bank account. And as these costs grew and grew, it was started under uh, Ed Rendell, the governor then, where they started pushing off 
Medicaid programs like long-term care, nursing home care, onto the tobacco money. So instead of funding health research or tobacco cessation programs, um, it started funding some of the state's year-over-year health obligations like Medicaid. Um, So they want him to borrow from there, but the complicated part of that is they want to push the borrowing through a state there's an arm of the state that is sort of controlled by lawmakers as well, and and you need appointees on that board to approve the borrowing. Right. And one legislative appointee can derail that. So let's say the House Democrats would rather see the borrowing happen through the Liquor Control Board. They can essentially block the borrowing against the tobacco fund because it has to go through this particular state agency yeah. called the Commonwealth Financing Authority. And there's four legislative appointees on there, right? And three gubernatorial, that's right. Right. Um, so that really leaves this up in the air, right, as to you know what is going to happen. But then the other option is borrowing against the liquor industry, and that has a whole other set of issues that goes along with it, right? I mean, it yeah. is a, that's a political thing, isn't it, Charlie? Well, it, it would be. I, I mean, it seems like it would be um, because I, I think the... The conventional wisdom is that if if the state um, borrows against future revenues from the Liquor Control Board, which which most of your listeners will recognize as the operator of our state store franchise system, um, if the state borrows against that, the conventional wisdom is that it would make it harder to pursue uh, full privatization of the of the liquor stores when there's that kind of obligation against them. Yeah, and we've talked and, about this um, in the podcast a little bit before. And but Republican majority members in the General Assembly are all about full privatization of that system. So mm-hmm. they, they would really prefer not to have their hands tied on that. Yeah. Um, but Wolf kind of seems to prefer that option. That was the impression that I got. Maybe you guys got a different impression? It's at least farther down the road than the tobacco concept. Like they're closer to fi- finishing that. Well, they've hired bond counsel. Um, it's more of a controlled process uh, from the governor's standpoint because two of the three appointees on the Liquor Control Board are his. Um, so it's... it's um, it's probably a more predictable process for him right now. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I honestly, um, I, I think the governor is sort of sincerely trying to keep his options open because mm. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, Wolf hasn't shown himself to be like a, a real ideologue about things. And, and, and I think that he will, um, I think that, I, I like to think that as the manager of this ship of state that he will, he will look at what, you know what's the deal that I'm getting on this on the LCB monetization, and what's the deal that I can get on the tobacco? One of them is probably going to look better than the other for the state long term, and I would hope that that would go into this decision. Yeah, but which, it should. Which be, is the it, best it, deal for the state? It should be said though. Either way, the state will be paying perhaps more than two billion dollars over twenty years. Yeah. To borrow now, and that that is. That is an ugly outcome for, for, the, for the state's taxpayers. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of, I think, the point we should use to kind of bring this home. It's like it really doesn't 
matter at the end of the day, like where we borrow from. Either of these options are going to have some real impact on people. One is going to make it harder to pay for certain programs, specifically tobacco cessation um, programs that people use. And uh, another is going to make it harder for lawmakers to privatize the liquor industry um, if you're a person who is interested in doing that. Um, I don't know if lots of uh, actual Pennsylvanians are interested in privatizing the liquor industry, but maybe some are. But um, anyway, I, I mean, like these are going to be things that yeah, they fall to taxpayers eventually. This is not an ideal outcome. All of our you know, elected representatives pretty much said as much. Um, so now, going forward, I mean, is there any other, like, budget stuff that you guys still think needs to be tied up? Well, just, just um, I, I will make the point that, to, to your point, that uh, remember, there are other legislators who would say, well, actually, this is the best outcome because, guess what, I, I didn't have to raise my constituents' taxes yeah. today. Well, clearly so, that's a very strong that. portion yeah. of the legislature because they got their way. But right. it's 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 another example of generational theft that yeah. this that this state with its debt is practicing, um, and so the taxpayers of tomorrow will pay for the decisions of lawmakers today. And I think just to piggyback on that point, it should be said, and I think we've said this on the podcast before, but the people who opted for this are by and large you know, the fiscal conservatives of our legislature, or at least the conservatives who opted, again, to not raise taxes, but to put yeah. more debt onto the state for a long time. But, Dem- Democrats, uh, I, I, think in that, I think that tax code vote was also carried by like 70 Democrats sure, in the House, too. Sure, sure, but they, they, were, they, they would have preferred tax they, increases. They would have preferred that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're right. They, you know, Democrats voted for it, too. It's everybody everybody's kinda, Everybody kind of caved in on this. Yeah. Everybody kind of said, we've had enough. And, and that's, that's I think that's one of the sad parts about this, too, is they, they had this fight over a relatively small slice of the budget yeah, right. for months and months and months, and then everybody just kind of settled for this path of least resistance. And yeah. it, it's really... Um, questionable policy. Yeah. Charlie, if Charlie fades out at any point, he's just talking out the window oh, and yeah, not to I, his microphone. She, she made a strategic <laughs> mistake by uh, having to sit close to this window, and I'm fascinated by what's going on in the, in the streets of Harrisburg. So that's what's happening with the sound, if you're Sorry. wondering. It's okay. Um, so anyway, so then going forward, because there are other issues that are right. you know facing the state now that we've finally gotten through this budget boondoggle. Um, there are more things they have to do, and they don't actually have that much more time before the year ends to do it. Uh, two months is not like a long time in Pennsylvania legislature land. No. So, uh, and yeah. historically, November and December is sort of a, a dead time for yeah. them. They, they like to make it a dead time, and they have yeah. two big December 31st deadlines. One is to reauthorize the children's health insurance program, and there's currently a fight going on over that because of, because of a provision that would bar some, uh, I guess, surgery for transgender uh, children. Yes. Or children children yeah. who want to be transgender. I think children who are transgender children. and want transition surgery. Children seeking gender reassignment surgery. Yeah. And yeah. then the other December 31st deadline is uh, to reauthorize an injection of money into the state's unemployment comp system, which uh, has issues. Yes. So let's talk about the CHIP funding first, because that's one that I believe, it already has become sort of a prominent issue, and I think it's going to yeah. continue to build as we go on. But yeah, Charlie, what it's, can you it's, tell it's us? It's one of those, you know, because it kind of marries um, this 
CHIP program, which everybody is always behind, mm -hmm. with a, another one of these social issues that just becomes a wedge for people. And uh, I, I'm always fascinated by these issues because it's, it's, it's one of those things where people are really guided by their by their belief system yes. and and it's it's usually becomes less transactional like so many things here are settled by well we'll do this if you do this you know it, it's horse trading and deal making but it's hard for people to do that when they're when they're so caught up in their emotional position on yeah it becomes a very and, um, very just like a core yeah. belief centered thing religion gets brought into it and, a lot, and what I happened think. here is that um i guess um in the summer of 16, there were some new federal regulations regarding CHIP that came down because of readings of the Affordable Care Act right. that and said this is that from the federal that, government, yeah, yeah, that, that said that um, you know this gender reassignment counseling, um, medical treatment, surgery should be paid for, for by people CHIP under 18, for people, yes. for people who who get who um, receive insurance through the children's health insurance program which generally we're talking about low and low moderate income families um and uh so governor wolf acting under that new federal regulation said okay we're going to open the door to that in pennsylvania and that's happened it's been sort of the way it's worked here for you know um i guess over a year now. Yeah, yeah. yeah since and, last and, August, they went into compliance. And I did some checking into this. I mean, the health department said that there are 34 cases of kids that have actually availed themselves of these kinds of services under CHIP. Not a lot. But, you know, for those families, it's a very big deal. These are costly treatments, and, and, and these are kids who are pretty emotionally fragile to begin with. Right. So um, there are people who are social conservatives in the legislature who are this is a this is a threshold that they think that just like abortion or, or other hot button issues they think this is something that um no public dollars should go to support so you, you've got this tremendous clash that has has now been appended on because they want to roll it out roll it back and say pennsylvania should not be paying through chip for these services right and their ability to do that is, I guess they're, they're taking, they're, there are court cases about this that are battling out in other jurisdictions. And, and right now, that's right now, the federal rule has actually been stayed. Nobody's really enforcing that right, you have that, to pay for these. That's so, why we're having this debate in the first yeah. place, because, you know, when the Trump administration came into power, they stopped enforcing this yes, rule that the Obama yes. administration had put in. So here place. we are, and, and this thing has got to play out. The Senate inserted a, a ban on, on gender reassignment, what, what was scaled back to, um, I guess they've tried to find a compromise position, right. because they're saying, look, we recognize, that the, the current position is, look, we recognize that if, if a kid is... is um, feeling that he needs to change his gender, that kid is in a very emotionally fragile state, and he should have access to counseling. Right. So, so initially, the first version of the bill did not include counseling. Exactly. They, did, they, they also banned everything. counseling, yeah. But, but now the position is, we'll let kids get counseling, we'll even let kids get medication, because there are drugs like puberty blockers and so forth that, that kids can take that can kind of slow puberty on the thought that, you know, it buys a kid time to, to figure out what they're going to do. And, yeah. and also, you know, because it's harder to do uh, a gender reassignment when you're 
basically like a, a full-grown woman or a full-grown man. So they're allowing those things to happen, but they have said no surgery, no irreversible physical changes. Right. And that's where that stands. And that now is going to the House and... Who knows what the House will do with it. Right. The um, governor has indicated he does oppose it, but hasn't said specifically, I don't think, that he would veto this version of the bill. Well, he, what he's said is he's working to get, and, and this is you know the parlance of the Capitol, he's working to get a clean chip reauthorization bill. So, And, and this is what happens a lot in, in these legislative battles and in Congress where someone will attach something to something else to force a vote on it and, and to squeeze out support for it because it's attached to something else that has support. Right. Um, and so in theory you could have the chip reauthorization bill separate from a bill that bans um, this this sort of procedure from being you know covered by chip. Um, it doesn't have to be in the same bill. But that bill would get much less attention though. But they are in the same bill, and that's what's causing the friction, uh, particularly, you know, two months ahead of the deadline to reauthorize CHIP, even though the last time I checked, the federal government hadn't uh, authorized new new funding for the program. So that's also an issue, and it's a related issue. Um, I I do want to just get back into, like, the the rationale people are using to say that they're for or against this. Senate President Pro Tem Joe Scarnati was one of the, I think, louder voices against uh, this kind of uh, reassignment surgery and also counseling at first. And he had with him a a revenue estimate, um, I guess a cost estimate for how much these procedures cost. And it wasn't that much. It was like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right. But, you know, we were trying to ask him. I think you were there. You might have been there as well, Mark. We were trying to ask him as he was going back onto the Senate floor, like, whether or not that was, like, made a huge difference. And he said... Sounds like a lot of money to me. Does it sound like a lot of money to you? I mean, in the context of state government, a couple hundred thousand dollars is not very much. That's not even pocket change to the state government. Right. I mean, $30 million is pocket change. So I don't think this is a revenue thing. That's the point, though. I mean, it's it's more a a philosophical issue. I mean, and and that's, you know, that that is kind of like one of the new frontiers of of health care and, you know, gender discrimination. Yeah. And, and so forth, because there are people out there who um, would argue that, look, the, this this gender reassignment, these issues are, are a psychological condition. I mean, I've heard that argument. Sure. And so some people put it in a whole different box than, hey, we should pay for this medical treatment. But, yeah. But so, I think what this comes down to is uh, Pennsylvania state lawmakers making medical decisions for other people when they may not have the... <laughs> training and expertise to do so. And this is, you know, that's the argument against this that comes down when you talk about abortion, too. It's like these are non-doctors making medical decisions at the core of it. I mean, would you guys, and is that, you say that's true? Well, certainly it is. Yeah, by definition, it is that. I mean, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to hand down policy from on high here. And that is, uh, as we've seen with abortion, that is always a very, very uh, treacherous path. Yeah. Politically. Um, anything else we can say about that? I think that pretty much covers that. Um, just so our readers know, over time, out the, there are 170,000 children in Pennsylvania covered under this program. Yeah. Um, uh, essentially, these are lower-income parents who, nevertheless, make too much money to be covered by Medicaid. 
and so they can buy into the children's health insurance program, which has sort of a sliding scale of premiums and co-pays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, out of that 170 million, is it million that you said? 170,000 children. Ever. Thousand. 33 or something. Uh, 34, took, 34 is the running total so far. Of took advantage that, of this reassignment treatment and or surgery. We don't know what. Yeah. So it's not that many. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. It's going to, I think, be a big battle. And we're going to hear some, at least some floor debate on it in the House coming up relatively yeah. soon. Um, real quick on the unemployment compensation thing, because that's sort of a little bit more nebulous. Um, this dates back, we've talked about this on the podcast before, dates back to this time last year when 500 people were laid off from the state because uh, funding expired for the unemployment compensation program. And these were workers in call centers that got laid off because uh, the legislature couldn't agree on whether or not to reauthorize funding for the program because they thought the department was being mismanaged. It led to a ton of hearings and a lot of drama. Um, and a lot of long waits for people calling in about yes. their benefits or to sign up or to inquire about what was, you know, where their benefits were. Yeah. Or, uh, it kind of shook up the Department of Labor and Industry. Uh, you know, Kathy Mandarino, who had been the secretary of that department, stepped out of that role and into a different one. Um, I mean, it really just kind of has been causing tumults for a year now. And we're still not resolved as to how we're going to pay for it. A lot of lawmakers think because the department's been mismanaged, there was a whole problem with a computer system that wasn't phased in under previous administrations that uh, they shouldn't be getting as much state money as they are. So now they're trying to phase it out. And that's going to be a debate we really hear about in the coming weeks. Yeah. And, And I suppose if they don't come up with a plan that is signed by the governor by December 31st, that will have the beginning of an election year where I suppose we would have the same thing happen yeah. where you have to lay off a bunch of uh, unemployment uh, call center yeah. workers. And Well, there are impending issues, actually, because they had stopgap funding that was given to them several months ago, and that expires on December 31st. Some are saying that could last them a little bit longer, but lots of people don't want to do that. They don't want to wait longer. Um, also, uh, the winter is a busy season for the Unemployment Compensation Office because there's seasonal layoffs from people who work through the summer and fall. Uh, so always January is a time when those call centers are flooded and claims are through the roof and not having enough people or centers open, which is the case right now, um, makes that much, much worse for the people who need to file claims there. So yeah. it's going to come to a head soon. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, and... Can I, can I just take the conversation in a slightly different direction? Absolutely. Mark mentioned the election year, and I just want to put a shout-out to voters. Remember to vote on Tuesday for yes. your favorite candidates for judges, school boards, city councils, borough councils. It's an important election. Tax collectors. Tax collectors. Uh, it's an important election, and you want to have your say. So. Yeah, absolutely. Please do vote. Um, the courts on Pennsylvania are very important. Uh, the Supreme Court is the highest profile race we're voting on right now, Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. Um, it's a Democrat-leaning court right now, so the uh, you know the balance won't change, but um, you still want to have your say. Yeah. Uh, so look those up. We've all done stories, I think, telling you who the candidates are. So they're out there. You'll find them. That's look right. Them. Google it. And um, the other the other thing to look forward to after Election Day, yes. um, we were talking about this briefly before, is um, I. 
I'm excited to find out what Mike Terzai is going to do about a gubernatorial <laughs> race. I don't know if you guys are, but he, he said after one of the last budget votes that uh, he was going to def- wait and, and let the judicial candidates for statewide judicial races and other local candidates get their message out until November 7th. And then after the election, he is supposedly going to uh, have his big reveal and let us all know whether he's in or out of the uh, GOP gubernatorial primary for and, next year. And this goes back to the spring when he uh, had his political consultants tell reporters that he was seriously considering it. And then yeah. he wrote a, I think it was a four-page letter to every member of the state Republican Party state committees. So sort of the, you know, the the big, elect, you know, the elected people who run the, the party saying why he was the best candidate to be governor. Yes. And he, as I'm told, swore up and down to party brass uh, that he was committed to running. And then nothing. Nope. Then you heard nothing. Um, and it should be said, too, that like his main opponent, which is uh, State Senator Scott Wagner, a conservative Republican, has been in the race officially since last January, I believe. Yeah. So it's been a while. It has had a... You know, like, supposedly the the one political consulting firm that he had been working with, he has dropped, and, you know, it, he was scheduled to be at a an early kind of preseason forum for the Republican candidates, and he, he, he skipped out on that. Now, obviously, they were still in the throes of finalizing the budget, so yeah. that, that may have been, you know, pressing business there, but yeah. But, but Mike Terza, if you're listening, let us know what you Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> but he, uh, on the other hand, I, I know that... Uh, you know, he's he's a guy who can get in the race still and um, has the capacity to do it. And there are people who feel like the other Republican candidates that have announced have not really, you know, nobody's really caught fire yet. And uh, so it's still a plausible candidacy if he wants to do it. Sure, and as, as House Speaker, he can raise a lot of money. And he has um, that name recognition across he, the state. And he's, he, he doesn't have very the well personal wealth of, of Scott yeah. Wagner. Right. Right. He's very well known to the party establishment, so that, that would is be a true. Problem. So he would be like the establishment candidate if he were to jump into the race. Yeah, I would you say kind, you kind of think so. I mean, I don't know to what degree. I don't know what degree Paul Mango has has um, sort of ingratiated himself with the party committee members, and I don't know to what degree Scott Wagner, who has really been out there on the hustings for a year, has has won over the hearts and minds of the county party chairs and so forth. But, yeah. If, if anything, the establishment candidate in the race right now might be Laura Ellsworth, the, the Pittsburgh lawyer who's been active with the party for years, yeah. raising money for candidates. She was close to Corbett. Yeah. The Republican governor, Tom Corbett, appointed her to various posts. Um, but, you know, she doesn't really have much name recognition. Right. Um, she's never run for office before. Neither has Paul Mango. But Paul Mango's never really been active with the party other than donating money yeah. from time to time. So, And all that is to say that, like... There, there's nobody in the race that has any kind of a, a stranglehold on it at this point. Right, right. So. All right. Well, I think that pretty much does it. We've also heard, by the way, from people who you know know Terzai that he's been just bouncing back and forth about this decision rapidly for a long time. I think yeah. he's had trouble uh, locking he, down a position. He has a history of committing to run for something and then dropping out. <laughs> Yes, so we'll see what he does. It'll be interesting. And if he does throw his hat into the race, it'll make it a more interesting race, I think. Um, But plenty of time to discuss that when the time comes. Um, Anything else, you guys? Anything else you're looking at? Uh, Watching? I think we pretty much covered everything. Just trying to get to the weekend, Katie. (laughs) Well, on that note, happy almost weekend. Uh, I think that about does it. Guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thank you. Fine.